And now if you will remain standing and open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 11. This is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. You would do well to give it your full attention. Psalm chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string, to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the ones who love violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You may be seated. Psalm 11, like so many of the others that we've looked at through our study in the Psalms, is a psalm of David. And it can be divided into three parts. In verses 1 through 3, we have the counsel of the weak. In verses 4 through 6, we have the response of the righteous. And in verse 7, we have the result. And so the psalm begins with David strongly asserting that God is his refuge. And so he wonders why his friends are giving him advice to take refuge elsewhere. He quotes what his friends are advising him, saying, How can you say to my soul, or how can you say to me? And here's the counsel from his friends. Flee like a bird to your mountain, for behold, the wicked bend their bow. They have fitted their arrow to sting, to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the upright do? You see, David's friends are concerned for him. They are afraid that he will be overcome in battle because his enemy has their bows ready. They are hiding in the dark or in the shadows, in the secret, in order to put him to death. And so they tell him to move swiftly like a bird to the mountain where he can seek safety. And then the quotation of David's friends concludes by asking, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the upright do? Now this, of course, this final verse, verse 3, is a metaphor making the point that a building is only as strong as its foundation. And if the foundation is destroyed, then there is no hope for the building. Now, with respect to this metaphor, the commentators are all over the place. 
with what it means. I might begin uh, with the worst of interpretations for this. Some have suggested that verse 3 means that if the foundations of society are destroyed, then what hope does the righteous have? Some have claimed that the foundations of society are law and order, and when those are destroyed, there is no hope for that society. That may, to some extent, be true, but not necessarily what this passage is saying. But to illustrate this misinterpretation, one commentator, for example, wrote, What shall we do when the laws are not upheld? When morality is undermined and evil sweeps unchecked, what shall we do when the Bible is undermined and its teachings disregarded? What shall we do when family values are crumbling and the tide of frequent divorce sweeps forward with increasing damage to children, parents, and society alike? What can we do when everything around us seems to be giving way? End quote. Now, I think commentators assume such an interpretation of verse 3 because men were seeking to kill King David, who was the Lord's anointed. And so certainly, to get to this point, society must have fallen apart. And if this is the case, then what hope is there? David should just flee to the mountains. And many, I think, have had this mindset in the church throughout church history. Think about our Wednesday night studies on the American uh, on American Presbyterianism and how many Christians at the time of the Revolutionary War felt like if they lost their civil liberties, then the church would not have any hope. John Witherspoon, the president of Princeton Seminary at that time, said in a sermon, there is not a single instance in history in which civil liberty was lost and religious liberty was preserved. In other words... That when civil liberties, when liberties from uh, the government are taken away, that the church has no hope. But you see, our hope is not in the civil government. Our hope is in God. But some commentators, as I have mentioned, have this very mentality of John Witherspoon and think it's present there in Psalm chapter 11, verse 3. Now, I personally believe that this is a gross interpretation of this verse, not only because it is theologically opposed to anything that the Bible teaches, but also because it assumes that David's friends are correct. That they are correct in the counsel that they are giving to David. Okay, so with that being said, what does verse 3 mean? What foundations are being referenced in verse 3? Well, there are a couple of options that I would give to you. The first option assumes that David is actually the one speaking once again in verse 3. And so he would no longer be quoting his friends in this verse, but would himself be asking the question there in verse 3. And if this is the case, then David is responding to his friends with this rhetorical question. And his point would then be 
that if your foundation is not God, then what hope is there? What can the upright do? Now that's a valid option, and it's true, absolutely true, that God is our foundation. He is the rock where we seek refuge. But I don't think that David is the one speaking in verse 3. It's more likely that his friends are still speaking, and if this is the case, then the other valid option that I give to you is that David's friends wrongly believe that he, David, is the foundation. That they are referring to David as the foundation. He is the king of Israel and the Lord's anointed. And this is why they are telling him to flee to the mountains. They don't want him to die. Because if the Lord's anointed is destroyed, then what can the upright do against the wicked with whom they are fighting. And I believe this to be the better of the two valid options that I've given you. And I do think that David's friends are misguided. They should have looked to God as the foundation and not to David. But because they look to David, they fear his death, and in doing so, they give him bad counsel. Now, We don't know exactly what the specific circumstances were that David was facing in this psalm. Some have suggested different events that are recorded in scripture, uh, though uh, many times they don't necessarily fit all of the psalm very well. I do think that 2 Samuel chapter 21, or chapters 21 and 22, fit the psalm fairly well. Turn there, if you have your Bibles with you, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 21. Now, in that chapter, David and his men had fought several battles with the Philistines. And then in the following chapter, chapter 22, David then writes a song of victory to the Lord. But look with me at 2 Samuel 21, beginning in verse 15. It says, There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword, fought to kill David. But Ibishai, the son of Zeruah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, listen, you shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. We can stop there. You see, David's men feared David's death in this passage. And so they tell him not to go with them to battle anymore. Perhaps they even told him to flee to the mountains, for there were many who were seeking to kill him. And the reason for giving him such advice was because they understood David to be the lamp of Israel, which must not be extinguished. But just like in our psalm, David does not listen to his men. 
In the remainder of the chapter, he goes into battle, he continues to go out to battle, and he kills many Philistines at Gath. And then in chapter 22, he writes a song of victory to the Lord. And many of the references in that song of victory are similar to the ones that we have in Psalm 11, such as references to the Lord being David's refuge, the Lord raining down fire and coals on the wicked, and the Lord's throne or temple being in heaven. And so this very well could be the occasion after which David writes Psalm 11, though it could also be another occasion whether recorded in Scripture or or maybe not. What we do know about the occasion in Psalm 11, that is what he's told us in Psalm 11, was that he did not listen to his friend's counsel to flee from danger to the mountains. His response is the response of the righteous who lives by faith. And here's what he says in response to his friends. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Okay, so David's response was not to flee to the mountains, but to seek refuge in God's temple in heaven. Ultimately, it was to find refuge in God himself and in the promises that he had made to David. In other words, he had faith in the Lord to deliver him from his enemies. Now, this battle that David was facing, or the many battles that he was facing, was not just nation against nation. But this warfare was spiritual. David was the Lord's anointed. And he was fighting the wicked nations who opposed Yahweh God. The Lord had actually instructed Israel to go into Canaan and to put these nations to utter destruction. They were wicked nations who were the offspring of the serpent. You remember back in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 that the Lord said to the serpent that he would put enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And that one particular man from the woman's offspring would crush the head of the serpent. And so the promises that David trusted in had their root in this mother promise that we find in Genesis 3.15. David, as the Lord's anointed king, was called by God to wage war against the wicked nations and to secure Canaan. The land of inheritance that God was giving to his people. And so in this way, beloved, David was a type and a shadow of the Messiah to come. The one who would destroy the wicked and secure the promised inheritance, not in Canaan, but in the new heavens and the new earth. 
Now, when Christ came on the scene, the Jews, the people of God, expected him to rule and to battle just as King David had before them. They expected him to wage war against the nations and secure the land of Canaan for them once again, especially since Rome had conquered them and had been ruling over them. But Jesus, however, he waged a different kind of spiritual warfare than David. It was a warfare defined by suffering. In fact, Psalm chapter 11 reminds me of the account in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus explained to his disciples that he must soon go to Jerusalem to suffer many things and be killed and raised again on the third day. And then in verse 22, Peter says to Jesus, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. In essence, Peter was saying, no, Lord, flee from Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem, flee from Jerusalem. You cannot suffer and die. You are the lamp that cannot be extinguished. But what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, his response is very similar to David's in Psalm 11. Jesus is saying that his mind, as opposed to Peter's, is in heaven. Because God, the Father who is in heaven, is his refuge. And of course we know that Jesus did indeed go to Jerusalem and suffer and die for the sake of his people, for the sake of dying for their sins. Jesus' spiritual warfare, you see, was defined by humility and suffering. And God's people today are called to the same type of spiritual warfare. The church is not to engage in physical warfare today. In fact, on the night that Jesus was arrested, someone who was with Jesus picked up the sword to wage war against those seeking to detain him. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. We are not called to wage spiritual warfare in outward strength and might, but in humility and suffering. And this may seem like foolishness according to the wisdom of men, which was the type of wisdom that Peter employed when advising Jesus. But the cross, you see, the very sign of suffering and humility is the power of God. Today we are called not to wage physical warfare, but to pick up our crosses 
and to follow Jesus. Scripture tells us that just as Jesus suffered prior to his exaltation, so we too are to suffer before we are exalted. Now, we might wonder why things seem so different for us today than it was in David's day. Why was he called to physically fight when he engaged in spiritual warfare, but we are instructed to fight only in humility and through suffering? In other words, why was it different for Old Covenant saints than it is for us in the New Covenant? Well, in truth, in reality, it really wasn't so different for them as it is for us today. And you really don't grasp this unless you understand redemptive history. And so think with me about Israel for just a moment. Corporately, Israel was a son of God. And God called his old covenant son to suffer first and then to be exalted. When God began to establish his nation with Abraham, he told Abraham that Israel would first undergo suffering in Egypt and then subsequently suffering in the wilderness prior to their exaltation and reception of the inheritance in Canaan. And so when Israel and David as their king was waging war against the nations, it was after their time of suffering. After their time of humiliation. Their physical warfare, therefore, was during the time of their exaltation. And so it will be with the church in the present age. Now is the time of our suffering. Now is the time of our wilderness wandering. But when Christ our King returns, there will be a real physical Battle in Christ at that time will definitively and finally conquer all his and our enemies. The book of Revelation depicts the destruction of the wicked with words very similar to Psalm chapter 11. We are told that the wicked will be consumed with hail and fire and sulfur just as David prays. In Psalm 11.6, for the Lord to rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur and scorching wind, he says, shall be the portion of their cup. But before that day comes, beloved, we must first suffer. This is our time of testing. David recognized that his trials were a time of testing. He too suffered. It may have been a time, may have been the time of Israel's exaltation and reception of the land of inheritance, but they still underwent to some extent suffering as well. David had been exalted as king, but he still experienced suffering. Just think about all of the Psalms. Of David that we have covered thus far. They are filled with suffering. And we might explain this as David experiencing 
exaltation already, but a not yet full experience of that exaltation. You see, David knew that the battles that he fought, when the torrents of destruction assailed him, when the snares of death confronted him, that these were the trials given to him by the hand of the Lord. He says, verse 5, The Lord tests the righteous. David knows that he is one of God's righteous who is being tested. Now, of course, David does not think that he was sinless and righteous in and of himself. He could, of course, recall his murderous and adulterous actions from the past and the many other sins of his life. But he trusted in the Lord and as one who trusted in the Lord by faith was one of the righteous and lived the life of repentance before him. And so he knew that being one of the righteous of God, having the righteousness of Christ imputed to him, that he was being tested with whether or not he would place his faith in the Lord or somewhere else. Would he look to the Lord for refuge or would he seek it in the mountains? And so we ask ourselves today, where do we find our refuge? Is it in the Lord or is it somewhere else? Right now, we are not yet in the land of our inheritance. We are wandering in the wilderness of this world. And the wilderness is the place of testing. The author of Hebrews exhorts his readers. He exhorts us in chapter 3, saying, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness... Where your fathers put me to the test. You see, as the righteous wander in the wilderness, they are being put to the test. You are being put to the test. Will you display your faith in the wilderness by looking to Christ, your God and Savior in heaven, or will you find refuge in the mountains? Of this world. The Lord's eyes from his throne in the heavenly temple sees his eyelids test the children of man. Those words in Psalm 11 are very similar to the end of that passage there in Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 4, as that passage closes out, Beginning in verse 11, we read, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. What rest is he referring to? The rest that we find in the land of inheritance. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. What disobedience? The disobedience when Israel tested the Lord in the wilderness. Verse 12, For... The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul 
and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Beloved Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is telling us to display our faith in the Lord as we experience our time of testing in the wilderness. And then the remainder of Hebrews 4 tells us to do what? It tells us that since we have a great high priest in heaven, that we are to draw near to the throne of grace where he sits in the heavenly temple and to find refuge in him. To find grace in time of need. See, that's where David looked in Psalm chapter 11. We are directed to the same throne to which David looked. And we can do so with even more boldness than he. For now, the resurrected and ascended Christ sits upon the throne, interceding before the Father on our behalf. Is that where you seek refuge in time of need? Or do you seek it somewhere else? Those who seek their refuge in the mountains and the high places of this world will not be able to stand before the Lord on the day of judgment. They will have failed the test because they believed not on His Son for the salvation of their souls. And the sight of God on that day, according to Revelation chapter 6, verse 16, will cause them to call out to the mountains and to the rocks to fall on them in order to hide them from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. But beloved, those who find their refuge in God through Christ, that is those who are upright, wearing the Garments of Christ's righteousness by faith. They shall have what we call the beatific vision. It's a vision of pure beatitude. As Jesus puts it, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. That's the vision we shall have. We shall see God. Or as David puts it in Psalm 11, verse 7, the result of the righteous who live by faith, he says, the upright shall behold his face. To him be all praise and glory now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you are our refuge, that you are our strong tower. You are the rock where we are safe, the foundation upon which we are built. For Christ Jesus himself is the very cornerstone of that foundation. And we are being built up upon it. Lord, we thank you for the safety that we have in you. For though we find suffering now, we know that being built upon Christ our rock, 
we will one day be exalted with him. That we will be raised from the dead. Receiving resurrection bodies, glorified bodies, and will dwell with you forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, we pray for that day to come quickly. And we pray also that you might continually help us to walk by faith in our time of testing. That when we face temptation, when we face suffering, when we face trials of all sorts, that you would help us by your spirit to walk by faith. Not wavering to the left or to the right, but following after our Savior, looking to him who is seated at your right hand. And this we pray in his most holy name. Amen.